Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history, and sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal. I'm Walt Woodward. If you're cooking for the holidays or just someone interested in the history of holiday foods, this podcast is for you. Recently, food historians Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald joined me at my home in Columbia for a dinner table discussion of traditional New England holiday foods. Not only did they bring along fascinating stories, they brought a feast of authentic 17th, 18th, and 19th century New England dishes that they've translated into modern cooking recipes and kitchen-tested for authenticity. If you want to wow your guests this holiday season with amazing food facts or authentic dishes they'll talk about all year, listen to the podcast and download the recipes at www.ctexplore.org backslash historic hyphen holiday hyphen recipes. Boy, was that good. Hi, this is Walt Woodward. What you have just heard is three people eating an old-fashioned New England plum cake. And boy, is it good. Let me tell you why we're doing this. Many of you I know listened last February and in the months since then to an interview that Brenda Miller at Hartford Public Library and I did with Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald, food historians who had written an amazing book, United Taste, The Making of the First American Cookbook, which was about Amelia Simmons' 1796 book, American Cookery, that was published right here in Hartford. Well, that interview was so much fun and we began that with some pretty delicious eating too you can see why I really wanted them to come back that I thought now that the holidays are almost on us it would be great to ask them to come back and talk to us about some old time New England recipes ye oldie that can be prepared for this holiday season I was going through these recipes last night and as I'm reading them my mouth is watering so I guarantee you (laughs) These recipes are so good that if you take whichever one is your favorite and you prepare it at your Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner table and serve it to your family assembled, you may actually be able to keep them from talking about politics, which this year is probably a pretty good thing. Having said that, Keith and Kathy, welcome back. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. Thanks. We are, I should tell people, we are sitting in my home in Columbia. They've agreed to come here. So we're sitting at my dinner table talking about these great recipes. And I am so appreciative that you came back. Thanks for coming. Oh, it's delightful to be here. Thank you for having us again. It's It's a treat for us, totally. Before we get into the recipes, I'd like to talk about a couple of things. The first is our view of traditional New England Foods. I think all of us have this staple set of recipes or of food items that we associate with New England. But in talking with you, I found that many of the foods we think are New England foods are not from the old days. They were late 19th century, early 20th century creations. Is that true? 
That's right. One of the motivations for us in writing about New England food is that as we researched and cooked it, we found that it's just a far more varied and and a richer cuisine than we're led to believe by virtue of, of kind of the dominance of the late 19th century and what's called the colonial revival period when, for you know, for good intentions, people kind of elevated just a few dishes and said, this is what New England food was like. They elevated them, but they also changed them so that they conform more to the taste of the late 19th century. When I think of New England food, I think of, for instance, baked beans. Is that old or is that... Well, uh, baked beans um, is old in the sense that one of the ingredients that was readily available that the settlers brought with them from the beginning and what was they were able to grow successfully was, was legumes beans uh, and beans are easily made into a stew kind of a stew a pottage and that is readily adaptable to the type of cooking arrangements they had with a fire going in the hearth so they would they would have bean pottage you know almost around the clock and was this um, the what uh, I associate with Boston baked beans? No, you know, the, no, that's that's where it's that's where it's different. Um, they weren't baked initially because they didn't. At first, people didn't really have the resources for baking. Gradually, some people did acquire those resources, and there began to be some idea of baking beans. But even of, but even then, them. the baked the baked beans were. A lot plainer than what we think of as Boston baked beans. No, yeah. no, no sweetener. For instance, Lydia Mariah Child uh, in the in the early 19th century says, if you'd like to make them more healthful, you can add some pepper. So pepper. Pepper. So this is a pretty austere dish. It's just baked beans, water, and a little pepper. Um, but no, it, nothing like the thing we, like we, think we of associate with beans. Boston yeah. baked beans, which yeah. is baked and it's kind of got a molasses and a bacon yeah. taste. And even the whole this whole thing with the special bean pot, uh-huh. you know, the bean pot hockey tournament in Boston right. and all that. Right. Um, that it was really recent. Fanny Farmer, the famous turn of the 20th century cookbook author from Medford, Massachusetts, she has a recipe for baked beans, which has the the sweetener, the molasses and everything. But she says, you know, you can make them in a tin pail if you want to. They'd be just That's as good. Funny. Um, so some marketing guy got an idea of how they could sell a lot of ceramic pots, right? Exactly. It's, defi- it's definitely a, an, an idea of the colonial baking, but not the reality of colonial And this goes baking. back to that 19th, 20th century colonial revival period, is that it, when it does, and that and that's when just a few dishes were were kind of pulled out of the long tradition of baking and cooking and roasting in New England. A few dishes became sort of the iconic foods, and it, it kind of blotted out everything else. So, so what were they? What are those dishes? Chowder, which we have in one of our books, a long section on chowder. Chowders were usually, in the colonial period, fish. Not They didn't have the idea of making clam chowder. Chowders were also sometimes made with pork, with meat. All kinds of things were in a chowder. This came down to just clam chowder for New Englanders after the colonial revival. The baked beans, the chowder, Boston brown bread. It was the standard bread of New England because we didn't grow wheat very well here, so we had rye and Indian meal. But it wasn't sweetened with molasses, and it wasn't steamed like a pudding, which is what we do with Boston brown bread. So it was really an invention of the late 19th Uh, century. By the way, the reason I think with both baked beans and with Boston brown bread, uh, I think there was a reason that they chose molasses. They did wanted to sweeten things up, make them more palatable. But the reason that they chose molasses rather than sugar, I'm 
pretty sure was that molasses actually had been, to the extent that people could have sweetened dishes back in, in actual colonial times, they would have had readier access to molasses and to sugar because it was a lot cheaper. But in the late 19th century, molasses, because of that fact, had more of a sense of old-fashioned, So if rustic, you want it to be virtue. ye olde, yeah. you will use molasses, will use molasses. even though... The oldie people really didn't use it. They would have, well, they did use it, but they would have preferred to use sugar. They'd rather have sugar. Just like they would have had wheat rather than uh, cornmeal and rye-based breads. They they only did these things out of necessity, but now it's being turned into a, you know, a symbol of how wonderful this old time A symbol of the good old days when life was simpler and people used molasses rather than refined sugar. Right. It's fascinating. So many of our standard New England foods, the chowder, the baked beans, the Indian rye bread, these are 19th century reinventions of original New England foods. Another little sidelight about the chowder, for example, is that when it was made with fish, that was in the period when fishing was an important part of the New England economy, and people that went fishing went well out to sea to find real fish. When you switched over to clams, to shellfish, that was at a time when it wasn't fishing and the sea as an economic resource anymore. It, it was at the seashore uh, so as, in a, as sense, a tourist it, location. So so we had clams instead of fish. So the, the late 19th century reinvention of clam chowder is fish chowder done for a new tourist trade when there aren't so Absolutely. many fish. Yes, and, all, and, and also because when it was fish chowder, it was a, it was a main course. And so we have recipes where uh, five, seven pounds of fish are used used in a chowder. It wasn't some little sort of, you know, highlight of the dish. The other thing about the earlier chowders, they weren't they weren't milk based um, or cream based. They were water. Really? They were water, and that they makes were sense. they yeah. were they were. It was a kettle food that could be cooked over an open hearth. It was layered. They they would use pork, salt pork, because they would have it layered with fish. Sometimes dried cod that had been soaked because that's available. Layered with like hardtack crackers and water. And that would be your chowder, but it would be very hearty dish and not something... Derived from, it was shipboard pottage, basically. Yes, so right. It's what they needed to see, and then they just yes. continue it when they yes. when they got there. Wow. In fact, the first recipe is called Chowder a Sea Dish from, from sea. Hannah Glass, um, the first printed recipe for chowder. But those chowders have, have fell away because people then turned the, the seaside, which had been just a place really of labor, of industry for fishermen. They turned it into a tourist place. And as Keith is saying, to harvest enough clams to really feed people nutritionally is almost impossible. Clams require stoop labor. They were often what was considered food for the poor. Or for the hogs. So then you you know, you know put a few clams in, you enrich it with cream, which they wouldn't have used that way or even had in the earlier colonial period, and you know you make it into something special that you might eat outdoors or you might associate with summertime. Oh, you're killing my miss. This is, <laughs> now you're going to tell me that the oyster cracker was a late 20th century invention. Of course. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so... So you've destroyed my old-fashioned concept of New England foods, which is fine because I still love the foods and I'm glad they did them. But, you know, there's another myth that we carry with us that is a 19th century invention. I think all of us, when we think about Thanksgiving, 
we carry around in our heads a, a picture, a 19th century picture of happy pilgrims at a table and Indians and everybody smiling and everybody sitting down to a great grand turkey dinner. Mm-hmm. But it didn't actually happen that way, did it? No, it certainly did not. Um, what is considered to be the first Thanksgiving uh, in Plymouth in 1621, that idea didn't even occur to anyone until the late 19th century. That's when that whole notion that that was when Thanksgiving began. It was part of the effort by New England spokespeople throughout the 19th century. It was part of the effort to, for New England to claim kind of cultural leadership sure. of the United States. Why Plymouth is considered the beginning of America instead of Jamestown is due to these propaganda. The idea of Plymouth Rock. By, and the, yeah, right. by New Englanders. In the Civil War, Thanksgiving was finally declared the national holiday. Well, if we're going to have a national holiday, we should have it go back to the beginning of the nation, which would be Plymouth, according to this New England version of things. That's our so, story, and we're so, sticking with it. <laughs> so that that is when that idea came, and also with all the immigrants coming in, it's to give them a convenient package of myths for the, them to, yes, have, right. to absorb. Yeah. Right. There was a festive meal in 1621 in Plymouth that probably was based on traditions of New England, I mean of English, harvest festivals, but it was not followed up on a regular basis. Uh, there, there is a tradition in the Puritan church of having days of thanksgiving and days of fasting, but these are ad hoc events, absolutely. right? They, they address specific occasions of goodness or problems in a or, community. Absolutely, right. and indeed... The whole idea of having a set holiday was anathema to the Puritans. They thought that was ritualistic, and in fact, Christmas, they totally abhorred as, they, absolutely. as, as you know, pagan almost, even worse than popish. So it was only in, gradually by the late 17th century and on into the 18th century as Puritanism became a little less hard-edged in its whole uh, approach to things. Uh, also, in the beginning, you know, if you're going to have a harvest festival and be thankful for a good harvest, they couldn't really be sure that they would have good harvests in those early years. So they and they didn't sure. have, they didn't some And they years. didn't always. Well, they didn't. So they couldn't exactly. be sure that every year they'd have something to be thankful for. So you couldn't have a, an established Thanksgiving holiday without that. You know, as they became more prosperous and settled, and as this kind of theology got a little less severe, then, you know, you could be sure that you would have something to be thankful for, pretty sure, and wasn't such a terrible thing to have a you know, a set holiday. So that's when Thanksgiving kind of gradually developed uh, all over New England. wasn't There wasn't a set date for it, though. It would be proclaimed by state governors at different times in different places, anywhere from late October to on into December. I, I guess it gradually kind of settled around towards the latter part of November. I, I actually read a newspaper article recently from the 1930s where the governor of Connecticut, Wilbur Cross, is is taking issue with Franklin Roosevelt because Roosevelt has declared <laughs> Thanksgiving is going to be on, you know, some specific date mm-hmm. in November. And Governor Cross said, this is in March, he proclaims, not in Connecticut. We will celebrate <laughs> it when we always do on the third or the fourth Thursday. Yeah. It's really, it's a, it's <laughs> a wonderful little yeah. thing. Yeah. Right, right. right. 
Let me recap. When we sit down to our Thanksgiving dinner every year, we do it in recognition and in memory of a holiday that didn't exist with people who would have resented having a holiday like that. And we eat turkey, which may or may not even have been on the menu at that. Am I right about yes, that? Yes, they had fowl clearly on 1621, but if it was turkey, we don't we don't know for sure. And if they one had... of the sources mentions turkey by William Bradford, but he doesn't. It's not clear that he's talking about this specific event. He says he sends men out fowling, which could yes, be turkey, right. it could also could be... be geese, could be sure. you know duck, could be partridge. We don't know. But yeah. but the other thing about turkeys to know is that you wouldn't sit down to a banquet of of a turkey because turkeys were really until commercial turkey growing became widespread. Turkeys were were eight to nine pounds, and they wouldn't. Feed a whole you know, uh, company for dinner. Right outside this window here, if you look out in this yard, there are mornings when a flock, I've seen this happen several times, a flock of 20 turkeys amble. They don't, they, <laughs> they, they don't care about the people. They amble up to the road and across the road, and they look really big. You know, they look waist high, and, mm-hmm. but not much meat. Not, Not much meat on on a, on a wild turkey, um, it, it, certainly in the 17th and 18th centuries. And so even when there was a kind of a harvest home celebration, what was on the dinner table would be, turkey would be there perhaps, but it would be supplemented by many things. There would be often a joint of beef, and that was a real celebration. There would be pies of all kinds. There would be probably a piece of pork, maybe a pork loin. There even. would be mutton, for was, sure. Now, was that... Because they like variety in their more variety in their meals than we're accustomed to, or is that kind of a necessity? Part, I would say part of both. Uh, some of it was that as a feast, you want to show that you you have beef, you have mutton. Uh, meats were hard to come by. Also, in the fall, when you slaughter, you eat the fresh meat, and then you're going to preserve things and brine things and salt it. things. Yeah. So you're going to eat the the pork loin, and then you're going to get the ham ready for for smoking and salting and things like that. At the fall feast, you're going to eat what you have fresh, and there's going to be a variety of things on a farm, not just turkeys. Oh, that makes great sense. Um, so, yeah. it, just in terms of the kind of cultural resonance of all this the more variety you have of, you have a lot of a lot of kinds of things it's a better symbol of the abundance that you are proclaiming about this society and this economy of what they thought of as independent family farms and, and what we do know or at least think we know about this first thanksgiving is that there is a lot of intercultural display going on here of the pilgrims kind of showing off their harvest and their resources and uh, the Wampanoag, who also were there, kind of demonstrating to them their mastery of hunting in the land, because the Wampanoag chief Massasoit shows up with 90 men, but he also brings five deer with him. So he's like, we brought our own food. You, you got somebody who can help us cook it? Right. right. And so, of course, that, 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 the, the deer, which when it's turned into meat, the Anglo-Americans call venison, if there was a center to this meal... It was the deer meat that the that the native peoples brought. And you you have as one of the recipes people will find on the website. Which, by the way, I should point out, we have ten or eleven recipes that we are going to post both on the Connecticut Explored website and on the Grating the Nutmeg website. The the foods we are going to talk about. 
you will be able to download and cook and serve right at your own faux Thanksgiving or faux <laughs> Christmas dinner. And, we, and, and, <laughs> and we, offend a pilgrim while you're at it. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope you will because one of the reasons that Keith and I have done this work is that we think that the tradition of New England cooking is so really so rich and varied and so wonderful. And the recipes are cookable. You don't need uh, you know, to live in a beautiful historic house like you do, Walt, which is wonderful if you do, but you don't need to. to... We don't cook on that hearth over yes, there. That's right. <laughs> you can cook these recipes in modern kitchens. And, and we've, we've um, tried to stay as true to the historic recipe as possible of the ones we've given you, but we're also, we've adapted them to be, uh, the quantities to be smaller for the modern family and to be able to be cooked in modern circumstances. Well, let's, let's talk about so the recipes just as a group now, you had recipes really from three centuries, didn't you? Many of them are of foods that we do think of in association with the holidays. There's a pumpkin pie, there's an apple pie, but there are other things. I looked at this recipe for something called a Marlboro pudding, and I thought, oh, i got to have that. that <laughs> it just sounds fabulous. What is it? And yes, you do, because it really is that good. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, marmor pudding is actually in the, in the English tradition of taking fruits and vegetables and custardizing them and putting them in a pie paste. They were, they're called puddings in pastes, for obvious reasons. And Marlboro is is an American invention, something that the English did not tend to custardize in this way, the the the, the kind of apple pudding that, that Marlboro pudding is. It's really delicious. It's made with cream and wine, um, stewed apples or applesauce. You can use applesauce, which would be fine. You know, it's absolutely delicious. It's in a one-crust pastry. They often made uh, their pies very rich with puff pastry, and they were... By the way, uh, good cooks of the uh, 18th and 19th century did not have just one pie crust in their repertoire. They had many pie crusts, and they often used two crusts for one when pie. When you say they had many pie crusts, you mean different pie crust recipes? Yes, that they knew how to make, and they would use sometimes two crusts on one pie. So, for instance, they would put a plainer crust that they knew how to make on the bottom, of the pie, and then they'd have a fancy puff pastry for the top. One of the recipes that we sent you, the the chicken pie, it's called Connecticut Thanksgiving. It's a Connecticut Thanksgiving, pie. not just any chicken pie. No, it's... it comes from a cookbook published in Hartford in 1844 by an author named Mrs. A.L. Webster. But anyway, that one, just on the point that Kathy was making, that one um, is made with a plain bottom crust and a fancier top crust so they're within two, the same pie. Two completely different recipes. There's a crust on the bottom and then the top is a different... A different, a different a recipe, di- yes, for a different pie crust. It's fascinating. Yeah, they did because they wanted it to be showy, but they also didn't want to waste the, the very valuable butter and the and making more buttery bottom crust. So the crust buttery, the more buttery part, it lines the pan. No, the more buttery part is, is on, on top. The top. That's the puff pastry. The plainer part, which is also thicker, this pie has a lot of the chicken. The broth that the chicken is stewed in goes into the pie. So you need a sturdier crust at the bottom so that it doesn't all kind of so, disintegrate with the liquid that's on there. Let me ask you a question. This 1842 Connecticut Thanksgiving recipe. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that by then, you know, we're not in the 1600s anymore, Mm -hmm. we're not in the 1700s anymore, is it in the 
early 1800s that this concept of a Thanksgiving feast as a regular event is taking hold? No, no. It it began earlier than that. Um, Steadily grew, I would say, during the course of the 18th century. We, in um, the book that you mentioned that we talked with you about before, United Tastes, we have a series of selections from uh, the diary of a, a gentleman named Dr. Mason Fitch Caldwell. Cogswell. Cogswell, sorry. From eastern Connecticut, from uh, Wyndham County. He had been living in New York, but he was getting ready to move back to Connecticut. He was from a, you know, a well-to-do... His father was a minister in in uh, that part of the state, and he had all these well-off acquaintances and friends in the area, and he went visiting several of them, including um, the governor who had been his guardian at that time, Samuel Huntington. I won't go into all the details, but he talks over and over again about, this is at, in, in, at Thanksgiving time in November, this is in the 1780s, 1788, and he, over and over again it's the same thing. We had turkey, we had pumpkin, pompion pie, as he puts it, P- pigs, apple pies, pumpion pies again in abundance, full-grown turkey and more. It's night after night, he's so, being treated to this stuff. And also having a, and drinking a mug of Flip, which was a rum-based uh, beverage that was very popular that would also be consumed. Which was warmed by the fire and keep you warm. In, and it's in a November. great name. You yes. want Flip. <laughs> yes. 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 yes, it's fun, it's fun so, to make, So this too. is back in the 1780s. There was also an ad in a Hartford newspaper, uh, the American Mercury in 1784, for a Hartford gro- grocery store saying that they had available excellent allspice, ginger, pepper, and every foreign article requisite to furnish a complete pumpkin pie, raisins for the cake, sugar and choice spirits for the flip. In other words, the cake, the flip. Meaning you are going to have <coughs> this these is ingredients what, yes. at yeah. This event. Yeah, this, these so are you, the prescribed. This is the menu right. that is. This is great. Yeah. So by the end of the 1700s, we have evolved into a sort of recognizable Thanksgiving holiday. Absolutely. Yes. And it, but it, but it's celebrated over many days. Um, it's clearly a, a, a harvest feast. Well, our Thanksgiving is celebrated over many days. There's Thanksgiving, and then there's leftover day <laughs> right. one, leftover yes. day two. Yes, right. and that's and and that sense of that sense of people having having time to be festive, and having time for for fun fun food. Well, basically. you know that's a really good point. Life for most people was a very hard hard endeavor. You worked all the time, right. and to have these right. these moments where you really did set off time to yes. be thankful, right. to, to enjoy the bounty of what you did. Yeah. So, yes. you know, even even in the myth, there's a germ of truth, Absolutely. Yes. at least by the late 1700s. Yeah, well, it's yes. another aspect of it that, you know, the Puritans wouldn't have particularly, the original Puritans anyway, wouldn't have particularly liked, but it's, it's actually a New England version of going back to Middle Ages, Carnival. You know, again, you know, the most people had to labor in in very, you know, total drudgery most of the time. And there were periods when, you know, carnival or festivals where the world would be tucked upside down and these, you know, poor slobs that worked all the time got to just play for that's so unreservedly for a day the, or two. The one vestige of carnival we have in America today is down in New Orleans. It's Mardi Gras, right? Just yeah. right. just before right. Lent. So isn't it isn't it perfect that in New England those prim and proper New Englanders 
would turn carnival into a family event with lots of food at the table. Yes, <laughs> but also some flip, you know. And <laughs> some flip. <laughs> there were. This is pre-temperance, you know. This is there's 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 uh, in the. In the plum cakes and in the plum puddings, there's brandy and rum and Madeira. Um, and people enjoyed that as well. I noticed in that early recipe there was a pompion, a pumpkin pie, or a pump, some kind of pumpkin mm-hmm. dish. I mean, back to those colonial revival foods that are missed. Is the pumpkin pie, as we celebrate it, a, a colonial revival creation, or was that...? Well, actually, the, the pumpkin pie... Um, the the first printed recipe for the pumpkin pie that we still mostly have on our Thanksgiving table does come from Amelia Simmons's first American cookbook, American That's Cookery, 1796, 1796 right. published first in Hartford. Um, she has two recipes for pumpkin, as she calls it. Um, they're both in pastes, which make them pies. There are two, and we've let one fall by the wayside, and we think that's too bad. It's a two-crust pumpkin pie, has mm-hmm. a top crust. and So they actually put a top they crust They put on a top them. crust of puff pastry on, which they decorated. Not just, yeah, decorated, too. And the, so and it's, the, a, it's a showpiece. It's a fancy pie. And mm-hmm. the interior is a custard, but the custard is lighter colored because it's made with sugar rather than molasses, so which they would have considered the, the finer sweetener. Um, But then there's another pumpkin pie that she gives, and it's the one that we've adopted probably because we think of it as being rustic, which wasn't really an 18th century value, but became a colonial revival value to make things look rustic. Um, But the actual recipe that is in American cookery, she puts them right after the other number one, number two, under the heading Pompeon, is indistinguishable. Probably indistinguishable from, from modern, from modern from pies. Modern pies. Yes, it's, it's, Except for the top crust. No, there's no top crust. This there is, is the no, second oh, one. Okay. The second one. The, the one that we've kind of all said is the pumpkin pie. Now, you sent, um, you sent one pumpkin recipe, and that has the... That's the, fan, top, that's that's the one the with the sugar one. instead of molasses and the top crust. Does that have an appreciably different taste? It does because, well, for two reasons. One, the custard is is baked inside the pie, so um, it stays very light. You know, sometimes on a pumpkin pie, the custard it browns. It gets baked over. So this of, is yeah. a very light custard. And the difference with with sugar is a really lighter custard. And then it's really unusual for people to be set, be told, here's pumpkin pie for dessert on Thanksgiving, and it has a top crust. Now, have you served that to people? We How have, do they react? We have, we have served it at our uh, family dinners, um, and people love it. It's delicious. The one trick about cooking it, for those of you out there who are baking, you can't see whether the custard has set, so you need to shake it a little bit to be sure that the custard has set. What if it hasn't? What do you do? It's going to be more, it's going to move more. It's it's, going to be more liquid. So make sure it's set. You can, you can put a a skewer or a a knife in the middle and it comes out semi-dry. It's a custard, so it's not going to be completely dry. But if it hasn't set, is it just a question of more time? A little more time in the oven. oven That's right. Yeah. We might mention, since we're talking about pumpkin pie, that there was a pompion pie in 17th century cookbooks. And in fact, it was even... There's a manuscript cookbook um, by a woman named uh, Mrs. Gardner, a wife of a Boston merchant from the middle of the 18th century that also has uh, this recipe, an English version of pumpkin pie because pumpkins were known in England as part of these Colombian exchange, New World foods 
making it back to, to Europe, that's very different. I won't go into all the details, but it has apples in it, currants, dotted with butter. Uh, the pumpkin is in strips, fried together with eggs to make a fried. little sort of, more wow. of a frittata, and then it's cut up into pieces along with the currants and the and the uh, sliced apples and the dotted butter. So we and, wouldn't we wouldn't associate if we tasted it. It wouldn't. No, taste it wouldn't like taste a like pumpkin. our pumpkin no, pie. But, but it's we, not custard pie. Yeah. We served it. We served that at one Thanksgiving to our family too. I bet they it, loved it. Well, Sounds it wasn't great. too bad. It wasn't too bad. When can when we give the, our talks. <laughs> Kathy tends to say that it's, you know, terrible compared to this custardized pumpkin pie, but there, I don't think it's quite that. There is a reason, however, that it, it fell out of fashion in England um, even there after the mid-18th century, and everyone now makes American custard pumpkin pies. Because it's because better. Because it's better. The, the, the way they did that earlier pie was, was sort of a medieval uh, form of pie where they had the what Keith called a frittata, they call a froise, where they... Um, grill a, a like a pancake, so the pumpkin is is in a pancake and then cut up, put in the pie, and then they put a caudle, um, which was pretty good, of uh, wine and and egg in. I'm sorry, this sounds really good to me. <laughs> well, the caudle. Maybe I have early modern taste. A, a caudle was a you know a standard item that would be mixed up for especially for sick people. Going back to the Middle Ages, wine and yeah. wine and egg, you mix it together. After the pie is almost done, you have to take it out of the oven, lift up the top crust. We have pictures of how we did this, and pour this caudal in there. The heat of the pie cooks the egg, and then you put the top crust back on. That's so interesting. And, and it, it is true that this Boston woman, uh, housekeeper, uh, Mrs. Gardner, housewife, did, did make that style pumpkin pie, but then... By the late uh, 18th century, uh, you know, everyone started doing the traditional pie as we now know it. So that is something that is is truly American. I haven't said this yet, and I really must point out that the recipes we are going to post and the recipes we've been talking about, many of them come from another one of your books, Northern Hospitality, Cooking by the Book in New England, which is, it's a wonderful collection of recipes and stories that for all the people who read United Tastes and loved it, now go get Northern Hospitality. <laughs> add it to we. My goal, my new goal in life. It's one of many, but this is a goal: is to have half of Connecticut have a Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald bookshelf <laughs> very on, in their kitchens. Well, your, your commission will be generous. <laughs> That's um, very kind. I, I hope it includes chewable things. That's all. <laughs> I, I should. I should. Uh, just add to that um, that um, the recipes that are posted on the website are these recipes sort of made doable in modern kitchens. In Northern Hospitality itself, we print them as they their verbatim transcripts of the way they appeared when they were first uh, that, published. That's a good um, point. So yeah. someone might look in Northern Hospitality and scratch their heads and say, what do I do now? Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Because the recipes that I went through last night that still when I think about I'm getting all juicy, um, those recipes are, I mean, I could go into my kitchen right now and as long as I had the ingredients, I would know pretty much exactly how to prepare it. So you have taken these recipes that seem uh, a little unclear or maybe ambiguous in terms of 
contents and you have translated them into absolutely cookable recipes. How did you do that? How do you go from, you know, the 18th century printed recipe to the modern kitchen? Well, I think one of the things that that we did, of course, we read a lot of recipes, so we got an idea of what uh, the writer of the recipe meant when they were writing. Um, but the other thing, and Keith was mentioning this earlier when we were all just chatting, although there's not a list of ingredients and ex, and you know ex, explicit instructions, um, they're not always exactly vague either. Um, a lot of the recipes give you a very good sense of what they mean, but they also assume that the cook is experienced and has some knowledge. Um, so what we did is we tried to apply the standards of the modern kitchen to the recipes, and Keith and I have cooked about, there are about 400 recipes in northern hospitality, and we've cooked about 125 of those ourselves, and really just through trial and error, writing down what worked for us. Um, it's very, we did find it's very hard to go wrong. There's some wonderful uh, recipes for just great food. Tremendous roasts of all kinds. We've done the roast venison, which is just absolutely delicious. It's from Gervais Markham, 1615. We've done all kinds of pies, which New England was rightly famous for in the, in the 19th well, that, century. It is interesting. So many of the recipes that we're talking about are they they have crusts or pastries or they are you know they're pie or tarts or uh, why is that so important why is that such a feature of early New England cookery as it was of English uh, cookery too um, uh, well one one main reason I would say which is that um, pie was a good way to preserve whatever you put into it um, uh, some of the uh, Meat pies, pies with flesh meat in them, actually were the first kinds of pies back in the back back in the Middle Ages. And you have a mince pie recipe, a yeah. beef we mince pie. We do have a right? beef pie, right, but there were yep. many other kinds too. In fact, so much so that pie crusts. One name for pie crusts, as pies emerged, was coffin. I I I read that in uh, actually in Northern Hospitality, and it, I thought, <laughs> I, really. It, so, they were called the the pie uh, the pie coffin or vault, um, and, but it makes sense because what you have is really valuable. If you've raised your own meat um, and slaughtered it, you know how valuable it is, and you want to preserve it and keep it well. And so you make a very stiff standing crust. The the coarser the grain, the longer it's going to last, mm -hmm. with very little fat because you don't want the crust to go rancid. And that you you keep your your meat preserved inside that throughout the winter so that you can overwinter with now, food. Now, the, they didn't have refrigeration as we know it, although living in an old house, you have refrigeration <laughs> in the winter, whether you want it or not. Yes. But how long were they able to preserve foods in, well, you know... That, yeah, I mean, these techniques, you know, were, you know, developed in... In England, and then you know, people that came here brought them with them, and actually, New England was a easy, easier place to do this than England because it had a, generally a. England is a more is a England is temperate more temperate than, yeah. than New England. There's you know more severe winters here, uh, and so um, uh, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe has a really lovely passage talking about. 
pie making at Thanksgiving time, um, where she talks about how um, uh, they would make so many. They, they were not only making; they were making tons of pies to have um, for the Thanksgiving feast itself. But they also made a lot more that they would store away so that they would be able to have pies all winter. And they were able to do it because of the cold climate. They had natural yeah. refrigeration. She, she says they made, it would not be uncommon for a family to make 30, 70, or 100 pies at this time of year. And they would last through the spring. They also, they also at this time of year, would put um, fruits and vegetables away uh, in the cellars and in the attics, and they would dry fruits and vegetables, which they would get out and then make into pies as well. This is such, um, so lovely, I might read the passage. Please do. This is from her novel, um, Old Town Folks, um, uh, which was published, she published a bunch of these nostalgic novels about early New England after she was world famous from Uncle Tom's Cabin. I believe this 1869 was the date of this novel. Um, and I'm sorry to say for the Connecticut audience that it's based on, the setting of it is based on Natick, Massachusetts, um, where her husband... She must have been confused. Where, <laughs> it's where her, husband, where her husband grew up. Anyway, it goes like this. A great cold northern chamber where the sun never shone and where in winter the snow sifted in at the window cracks and ice and frost reigned with undisputed sway, was fitted up to be the storehouse of these surplus treasures, meaning the pies right. that weren't going to be eaten right, right then and there at Thanksgiving. There, frozen solid and thus well preserved in their icy fetters, they find, formed a great repository for all the winter months, and the pies baked at Thanksgiving often came out fresh and good with the violets of April. This is great. So, I mean, I've I never really thought about that, but November, Thanksgiving is a good time to bake up for the winter because it's cold enough by then that things will tend, if you get them in that nice, that, I have that room. It's called my bedroom. If you, if you get them in that room, they will stay cold till Of course, spring. they also made other pies as, as the season went on because they had... They had fruits stored in their cellar, and they also had dried fruits hanging from the right. attic rafters or the kitchen even. Uh, so they would they would still be making pies all through the season as well. And they and they made summer pies. I mean, these were wonderful pies. This is a this is a pie region. We're a pie region, and we think it's really sad, Keith and I, that we we've reduced it to a couple pies at. So you think the idea of year-round pies, savory pies, and sweet yes, pies yes. should make a comeback? I do, too, looking at these yes, recipes. That I, we do. Here's yes. another quote yeah. that, um, that people might enjoy from uh, um, uh, Charles Dudley Warner. He right. lived in Hartford, and was a friend of Mark Twain. Wrote The Gilded Age with Mark right, Twain. Right, um, around, uh, but the sense before this, we talk about a Vermont woman who made 421 pies in 1877, more than one a day. Uh, and then we say, around this time, Mark Twain's friend Charles, Charles Dudley Warner concluded that all the hill and country towns of New England were full of women who would have felt ready to sink in mortification through their scoured kitchen floors if visitors caught them without a pie in the house. The absence of pie would have been more noticeable than a scarcity of the Bible. My goodness. 
Well, so there it is. We have these recipes. There are baking, yeah. many pies to yeah. choose from, and unless you want to be found to be wanting, I think you should look up one of these. Let me ask you a question about going through these recipes together. When you cook together, is one of you the chef and one the sous chef? Absolutely. Or how's your division of labor? Well, as you might expect, I'm the sous chef. Um, well, Keith is also the note taker because we're always taking cooking notes as we're as we're making things so that we can um, write up the recipes. So now, now I have to ask this because both of you have, both of you are are librarians at heart. I mean, you, yes, you, right? Yeah. So, do you have a recipe card catalog? Do you file in a system? <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have a paper card catalog, but we do it's have a catalog. It's now digital. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah that's digital. great. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's really, we think it's it's home entertainment. It's great fun to do yeah. these things. And what, we've, what we'd like to say to people is don't be afraid to try it. Um, it really is fun. It's really doable. It's not something just for, you know, these wonderful historic houses that we visit. It's great to see hearth cooking demonstrations. But we think it's really sad that we don't embrace our, our regional uh, cooking culture, our, our cuisine. Uh, other countries do. I think um, you have a, a very important point here because I think a lot of people hold off on attempting these old recipes because they think if you don't have the stone, if you don't, mm-hmm. you know, if it's not really old-fashioned, it won't be authentic. But that's not so. It's not so. It's very close. I mean, who, who can really say exactly? Who knows, right? You know, the, clearly wheat was different. Um, uh, sugar came in a cone. Um, but we try to explain, you know, if it says uh, powdered sugar, it meant the, it was grated, but it's more like our granulated sugar than than what we think of as confectioner sugar. So we do some explaining in the recipes for people, but it may not be exactly the way it tasted, but it's pretty close, we think, and it's really fun to do. I can't wait to get at these recipes. I think uh, I will be, I'll put on my sous chef hat, the the (laughs) short one, and Marie and I will get in the kitchen and we will try some of these out. I am just so appreciative that you came to do this today and... If you're listening to this, go to the Connecticut Explored website, the Grading the Nutmeg website. We will put links or we'll put downloadable recipes for you to find these. And we'll give you links to uh, Keith Staveley's and Kathleen Fitzgerald's food blog. It is a culinary delight and a treasure, as are both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming back to Grading the Nutmeg and Happy Thanksgiving. I don't care what the pilgrims say. <laughs> Thanks so Same much. To Same you. to you, Walt. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having us back. We really enjoyed it as, as we did before. Safe travels. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald. You can download Keith and Kathy's historic holiday recipes translated for the modern kitchen at www.ctexplore.org backsplash historic-holiday-recipes. And for more great Connecticut history stories, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at bowman.legal. I'm Walt Woodward, wishing you the happiest of holidays and hoping you'll join us next time 
for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.